mentioned at the beginning of our service this morning, we're blessed to have a guest speaker today. Uh, he is Mr. Dan Waterman. He is an elder at Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship Church uh, over in the Allentown area here in Pennsylvania. Uh, he holds a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and he came highly recommended by Dr. David Allen, uh, who has... You guys know him. He's spoken here a few times. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like to invite Brother Waterman up. Good morning. So I'm going to set my timer for 36 minutes, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, it's a privilege uh, and a joy to be with you this morning. As uh, Pastor mentioned, uh, Dave Allen put Pastor and I in touch with each other, I guess a couple months ago, um, uh, Dave came to me and said, hey Dan, uh, pastor needs a break, needs a vacation, looking for a pinch preacher, would you consider it? So I'm here this morning. Um, with me this morning is my, my wife, Christina, and our two youngest, Joel and Micah, uh, they're twins, uh, they are children's number 10 and 11, God has blessed us with 11 kids. Uh, most of them are adults. Um, we only have uh, Sarah, who's not here with us. She's the last other one to still be at home with us. So, um, without further ado, what I'd like to do this morning to get us started is I want you guys to kind of think about uh, these three historical events or dates. And as I mention them, I want you to think of what do they have in common. All right? All right, the first one, COVID. The second one, September 11th, 2001. And the third, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So think about it. What do those three events, or those three dates have in common? Now, if you answered my question by thinking that these three events, what they had in common was the tragic death of people, well, you'd be, be partially correct. That's true. There were people who tragically died. However, they have something much more in common in common for those who remained alive. And what do they have in common? All three of the events put our nation into a state of what I call shock. If you were alive for any of those three, you know how it felt, how shocked you felt when you saw those events unfold. I think most of us were alive during COVID, right? We can remember the thoughts and feelings we had when we started hearing the government say, shut down, stay in place. Um, and then we saw businesses actually shut down. We're like, what is going on? We were in a state of shock. For those of you who were alive on September 9th, 2001, I'm sure you can remember how you felt when you saw those planes crashing into New York City, Washington, D.C., in the field in western Pennsylvania, and how shocked we were to realize that we were under attack. And for those of you old enough to remember November 22nd, 1963, that was the day when President Kennedy was assassinated. Here he was riding through the streets of downtown Dallas when suddenly, in an instant, his life was taken in a very shocking and tragic way. And feeling shocked is the emotion that all of us have when we witnessed or lived through any nationally significant events. We all experienced shock because we understood that these events were not normal. They were unexpected, they were tragic, 
and they also also had national implications. Now, as we turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we encounter another national event that's so shocking that the people are left bewildered and afraid. If you have your Bibles, turn with him, turn with uh, uh, to chapter 6 of 2 Samuel and read with me, uh, just follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 15. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there, because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And da David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we just thank you for this morning that as we gather, we can hear from your word. Father, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us this morning through this passage of Scripture. Lord, help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. And Lord, may you increase and may I decrease as I preach this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we examine this passage and what I believe uh, God is telling us this morning, it's important that we understand the context. If we don't know the context, we're going to miss. Or we're not going to totally understand what's going on here. So here are some things to keep in mind regarding this context. David is now the king of Israel, and he wants to do something that his predecessor, King Saul, had not done. He wants to establish a central place of worship for the nation. David had just recently established Jerusalem as the new capital. He had recently conquered that city. And in David's mind, Jerusalem would not just be the seat of government for the nation, 
but it will also be the very heart where the people would go and worship God. And so David prepares this grand national event for his entire nation to celebrate. This event to witness the relocation of the ark from the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem. And all of Israel is participating in this grand celebration. And as the party is beginning, as the ark is being relocated, suddenly, in a moment, the nation is put into a state of shock. Look again with me at verses 6 and 7. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Can you feel the shock and tragedy of this event? I mean, imagine that you're there. You're there celebrating. You're watching this, the ark being transported. And suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this tragic event. Unexpectedly, a simple event of an ox stumbling causes one of the most shocking scenes in the Bible. If you've ever read this passage before and looked at it and think, what in the world is going on? You're in great company. I think all of us, when we first read this, were shocked. I know I was. In fact, David himself, look at his reaction, verses 9 and 10. He's so shocked and just bewildered. He was afraid of the Lord that day. How can the ark of the Lord come to me, he says. And so he's not willing to continue with the procession. He stops the entire celebration. He stops the parade. In fact, he says, take the ark and put it in this man's house over here for now. And so in my sermon today, I want to fix our attention onto this God that we read about here. I want us to see who God really is. And I want us to more fully realize how totally opposite he is from us. I want us to walk away from this church service today with a renewed sense of how separate God is from us, how holy he is, and how unholy we are. I want us to think deeply about this fact of life. Because we are sinful, because we are unholy, whenever we encounter the holiness of God, we find ourselves shocked. To quote R.C. Sproul, we all have a tendency to soft-pedal the biblical portrait of God. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that the holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. And this is going to be my first point in my sermon today. Because God is holy and we are not, we flee and hide from God. And we instinctively know that being near him is dangerous to us. And yet, in this passage... I also see God's amazing love for sinful people and just how much he desires people to be with him. God wants you and me, we who are sinners, to not just be near him, but to be with him. And so my second point is what I call the loving insanity of God. He pursues us and desires us to encounter him while we are trying to flee from him, trying to escape the trauma of his holiness. He is after us calling us to face him, and he's replacing that trauma with eternal contentment and healing. And finally, my last point, because of this great exchange, this exchange that God makes of our trauma for his eternal healing, we can celebrate and experience unending joy as we bask in his holiness.
So let's look at my first point, how God's holiness causes trauma. Now, I'm going to spend most of my time this morning on this point because I don't think we spend enough time and appreciate how traumatized we are in of ourselves when we're faced with God's holiness. I know I certainly don't think about that enough. Think about it. In this culture in which we live today, where sin is glorified, where it's put on display, where it's celebrated, we may fail to ponder the incredible power and beauty of God's holiness and just how stark it is from our sin. We should never fail in appreciating just how awesome God is in his holiness. As Exodus chapter 15, verse 11 states, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And because God is so majestic in his holiness, we just can't simply tolerate it. We are traumatized by it. But first, let's tackle the first and perhaps obvious question any reader would have reading this passage. Why did Uzzah have to die? I mean, think about it. All he did was steady the ark. The oxen stumbled. The ark was about to fall on the ground. Why, Uzzah, did he have to die? Well, first of all, let's remember the significance of the Ark of the Covenant to the nation of Israel. Do you remember why the Ark of the Covenant was created in the first place? In the book of Exodus, which is where we find the very first mention of the Ark, in chapter 25, we find God giving elaborate instructions to the people of Israel of how they are to worship him. And part of that worship is constructing this tent that could be transported, where when they would stop, they would set it up, and there would be this ritual of how to worship God. And, and within that tent or that tabernacle, there would be special furnishings, including this Ark of the Covenant, this special vessel that would contain, among other things, the Ten Commandments that God had given Moses. And so in Exodus chapter 25, there are 13 verses dedicated to describing how this vessel, the Ark, was to be built. I'm only going to read a few verses. Listen to Exodus 25, verses 17, and then 21 and 22, which focuses on the top of the ark. God says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Did you catch what God said there about the mercy seat? There I will meet you. We see God in the creation of the Ark of the Covenant establishing a place where he would meet with his people. It was here where he would meet with them and give commands to them. Additionally, the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God would forgive the sins of the people. As recorded in the book of Leviticus in chapter 16, once a year, the high priest would go into the tent, into the tabernacle, and once a year, he was allowed to go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where he would <clears throat> excuse me, sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed animal upon the Ark, on the mercy seat itself 
to make atonement for sins. Look what uh, God instructs Moses in Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16, speaking about the high priest and what he's supposed to do. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, that is inside the Holy of Holies, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanlinesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. In fact, because the ark was where the atonement for sin was being made in the Old Testament, where a holy God was forgiving the sins of his people, God had forbidden anyone to actually touch the ark. In fact, we read that warning in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. God says specifically there, if anybody touches the ark, he will die. So we see that the ark was incredibly significant. It was a most holy vessel where God would not only meet with his people, but where also restitution was made for their sins. So secondly, in answering the question, why did Uzzah have to die? We also need to know that God had also given specific instructions to the Israelites in the way the ark was to be transported. Listen to what God says about this in Exodus chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings that are on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. So I think we now can start answering this question, why did Uzzah have to die? First, the ark was not being transported as God had specifically instructed. Again, we just read, God mandated the use of poles to carry the ark. But if you look back in our text here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, at verses 4 and 5, notice how David and the Israelites are transporting the ark. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. They were not carrying the ark on the poles that God had said. Secondly, in addition to not carrying the ark correctly, we got to remember the ark represented the presence of God. And as I mentioned before, where God made restitution for sin. And so therefore, the ark was considered holy, off limits. In fact, remember, the, high, the chief priest could only go there once a year. And so this is what 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7 is referring to when it says that God struck Uzzah down because of his error. Uzzah erred against God by touching the ark. In fact, David realized this. After he recovers from the death of Uzzah, and after he has time to process his shock, he recognized and he actually publicly confessed his sin that he and Israel committed when they were transporting the ark. Listen to what David said about this as recorded in 1 Chronicles 15, which, by the way, is, is, a, is a parallel passage to 2 Samuel chapter 6. David is speaking to the Levites. And remember, they were the tribe in charge of the ark and this tabernacle. And David says, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. 
So we see that the Israelites disobeyed God, not only in how they handled the ark. They transported it specifically against God's instructions. But they also failed to realize that the ark itself was a symbol of the presence and holiness of God. In fact, I would argue this morning that the Israelites were actually listening to their culture around them instead of listening to God when they made this decision. Now, why do I say this? Well, did you notice where the ark is at the beginning of this passage of Scripture? Look at verse 3. It tells us the ark is in the house of Abinadab. Why is it in the house of this person? Well, I don't want to go into too much detail because that's a separate sermon in itself. But 20 years before all this started, before Saul was even the first king of Israel, the nation of Israel had gone into battle against the Philistines and they had lost. And not only did the Philistines beat the Israelites in battle, they also captured the ark. You can read about that event in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and in 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6, you can read the extraordinary means God uses to motivate the Philistines to send the ark back. It's, it's a fascinating story. I encourage you to read it on your own. But what's important for us here this morning is the way the Philistines returned the ark to the Israelites. How'd they do it? They placed the ark on a cart, which was pulled by two milk cows. And then they released the cows and watched the cows walk directly towards the Israelites. And so I suspect here, 20 years later, the Israelites remember that. They remember seeing the ark come back to them, being pulled on a cart by oxen. And I suspect that they assumed this was acceptable. Why, if the pagan Philistines were able to transport this cart this way, why couldn't we do it? And so instead of transporting the ark to Jerusalem the way God instructed, it seems to me that perhaps David and Israel adopted the same practice. They copied what their culture did. They did as the Philistines did, not as God's word instructed. So I want to ask you a question here for application. If you are claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, are you living the way he wants you to live? Are you making decisions in your life according to his word? Or are you watching the culture and adopting their practices? In what ways are you like Israel, transporting the ark on a cart pulled by oxen instead of carrying it on the poles that God wants? Are you listening to the culture and the way you live, or are you listening to, to and obeying the word of God? Will you obey God's word as it's written, or will you be like the Philistines around you? Um, <clears throat> I have the joy of being an elder at Cedarcrest, um, and along with the pastors, uh, one of the great privileges is, is that we go to God in prayer for the needs of our congregation. But we also are... <clears throat> we also understand the sinfulness that each one of us has in our own heart. And we pray and ask God to keep us humble, to keep us focused on his word, that we as elders and, and, and our pastors, that they would focus on expounding God's word and that we would live and obey God's word as it's proclaimed every Sunday morning. I would encourage you guys to pray for your pastor. Pray that he would continue to be faithful in preaching God's word. And pray for yourselves as a local congregation that you'd be faithful in living out God's word. 
It's not going to be easy, especially in this culture of ours that celebrates sin more and more viciously. In fact, that claims that we are intolerant because we don't. Do not become like the Philistines. Do not do like the Philistines. Do what God says in his word. Now, lest you conclude that perhaps, based on what I'm saying so far, God is some kind of tyrant who only wants people to follow his rules perfectly and who will strike us dead instantly if we get out of line, we need to understand the more profound, deeper reason why Uzzah was struck dead. We need to understand how immensely unholy we are in comparison to God's holiness. Now, what do I mean when I say God's holiness? When I say the word holy, what do you think of? What comes into your mind? I suspect most of us, when we hear the word holy, we think about moral perfection, not sinning, doing what is right. And that would be correct. Part of holiness is indeed about moral perfection. However, holiness means much more than that, particularly when we're talking about God. It has a much more robust and profound definition than just the absence of sin. The word holy comes from the Hebrew word kadash, which means to cut. So therefore, to be holy means to be cut off, to be separate from everything else. I like how pastor theologian Paul Tripp puts it. He says, holy means to be in a class of your own, distinct from anything that has ever existed or will ever exist. So when we say that God is holy, it means that God is separate and unlike anything or anyone. He is distinct. He's in the class all by himself. The Bible is full of references to how distinct God is from us. Uh, just one example is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We need to stop and pause and realize that because of God's holiness, because of how separate he is, how cut off he is from us. When we encounter his holiness, we are traumatized. We can't handle it. In fact, we see this throughout scripture, including at the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. Remember after God created Adam and Eve, everything was perfect, everything was good. There was Adam and Eve enjoying deep, intimate fellowship with God. They had nothing to fear, nothing to shame. They were naked. They didn't even know it. They spoke with him. They walked with him. Everything was perfect. But as soon as they sinned, as soon as they took the forbidden fruit and ate it, do you remember what happened? They instantly knew they were naked. They instantly knew they were shame. And after they covered their nakedness with loincloths, listen to what it says Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve instinctively fled from God because of the trauma they felt due to their sin. No longer were Adam and Eve now with God. They are now separated from God. 
because of their sin. In fact, the Bible hammers this point home over and over again. Just a few other examples. In Exodus chapter 33, God is having this conversation with Moses. One of these fascinating times in Scripture where we see Moses speaking almost personally with God. And Moses says to God, God, please show me your glory. That's amazing request to think of, isn't it? And what does God say to him? God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy whom I will show mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. You can see the separation we have from God. We are not allowed to see God in his face. In fact, as God tells Moses here, you can't handle it. If you see me, you're going to die. Not only can we not see God, but also we are traumatized by our own sin. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah describes for us this vision he has when he sees heaven. And in this vision, he sees angels, these seraphim, who are continuously worshiping God around the clock. And what are they doing? They're calling out to each other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what is Isaiah's reaction when he sees all this? Do you remember? Verse 5, Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am lost. Or in the King James Version, I am undone. Why, Isaiah? Why? Why are you lost? Why are you undone? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's Isaiah, instantly confronted with his own sinfulness when he beholds a vision of God and his holiness. I'm reminded of Peter's reaction. When Peter sees Jesus and realizes who Jesus is for the first time, after that miracle of all the fish that they captured, they went fishing all night, couldn't capture a single fish, and Jesus says, put your net on the other side of the boat. So they do. And all these fish are coming on, and the boat's about to sink, and Peter suddenly realizes, and he says this, Jesus, depart from me, because I am a sinful man, O Lord. So I think now we can fully answer the question, why did God strike Uzzah dead? Uzzah was full of sin. And by touching the ark, he was not only disobeying God, he in fact, in a way, was looking at God. The ark represented the presence of God. And by touching the ark, Uzzah crossed that line that God said not to cross. A sinner cannot be in the presence of God and live. And when a sinner is confronted with God's pure, righteous holiness, he is traumatized. God's holiness is so perfect, so pure, so separate from us, we just simply can't handle it. In fact, whenever you think of God's holiness, never forget about the fact that God has to punish sin. God would not be loving, he would not be good if he did not punish sin. As God says in the first part of Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. So let me ask you this question this morning. Have you ever stopped 
to wonder about the awesome holiness of God? How awesome he is compared to us? Have you been struck by the misery of your sin? How so far short we fall of God in obeying him? Have you, along with Peter, cried out to God that you are a sinner not worthy of being in his presence? And like David, have you admitted that you have sinned against God, that you are deserving of God breaking out against you? You know, I recall a time when God rest upon me my sinfulness. I was only six years old, and I remember to this day just how confronted I was with my sin as a six-year-old. And if God is calling you this morning and you have not submitted your life to Christ, I beg that you would just cry out to God, God, I need you. I need you. Because compared to you, I am full of sin and I am traumatized by you. But this now leads me to my second point, which is I call the loving insanity of God. And I use insanity in the good term, don't worry. Despite our natural instinct to flee from God because of our sinfulness, and despite the fact that we deserve to die, as God has already established here, God still wants us to be with him. And in fact, he will bring us to him and we will not be traumatized by it. Look at, chapter, or look at uh, verse 11 here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. You see what's happening here to this household? The entire household is being blessed. Why? Because the ark of God was in his house. Now, I'm sure everyone in that household knew not to touch the ark. I mean, they had just seen what happened to Uzzah. I'm sure they were traumatized by that. But God still chose to bless them because the ark was near them. Notice the wonderful simplicity of how the text describes this. It just says, the Lord blessed. Despite what has happened to Uzzah, God is showering this particular family with blessings, and it's so obvious that it's reported back to King David. And this should come as no surprise. If you read your Bible, you know that God is a God of love, and as Psalm 102.20 puts it, he's looking to set free those who are doomed to die. And we can see in the Ark of the Covenant itself an example of how God has this insane love for people. In addition to being the vessel that contained the Ten Commandments, in addition to being the location where God would meet with his people in the Old Testament, the Ark was also the symbol of God forgiving Israel of her sins. If you remember back to Exodus 25 when I read about the mercy seat, which is the top of the ark or the lid. That word mercy can, translated, can be translated as the word propitiation. So literally, the top of the ark was the seat of propitiation. Now you might be saying, Dan, what does propitiation mean? It's a wonderful word. I hope you fall in love with that word. Propitiation, we don't normally use it outside of the Bible, but it means to appease or satisfy the righteous wrath of God against sin. Where God's wrath and his holiness has to punish sin, that punishment is taken. That wrath is appeased, is, is satisfied. 
As I mentioned previously, the mercy seat was where the sins of the people were atoned for by God. It was there that God's wrath towards their sin was satisfied. And it's at the mercy seat where the, where the priest would come in once a year and sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animal on the mercy seat. Sin required death, and so the death of the animal brought temporary resolution to the problem of sin with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. But the mercy seat on the ark was also a symbol pointing toward the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who himself would propitiate our sins once and for all. Listen to the, Romans, listen to the words of Romans chapter 3, in verses 24 and 25, where Paul is expounding on this. Paul says, We all are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this concept, this word propitiation, ultimately, ultimately it refers to the work of God in satisfying his just wrath against sin by pouring out his judgment upon Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. Why would Jesus do this? Well, or God do this? Well, listen to this. Listen to 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I call God's love insane because it makes no sense from our perspective. We don't deserve it. We deserve wrath and punishment like Uzzah did. Just as God told Adam and Eve, if you take from that tree, you will surely die. And yet, God chooses to punish his son Jesus in our place. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants us to be with him. So here's a practical question for you to consider. Have you ever discovered this insane love God has for you? Do you realize how much God loves you? As we read in John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And now as I close with my last point, because of God's love for us, we can participate in the celebration of God and his holiness. I mean, look at what happens here at the end of this passage here in 2 Samuel 6. Look at verses 12 to 15. You see David hearing that Obed-Edom is being blessed because of the ark. David now realizes, God, you're no longer angry with us. God, now I can bring the ark back. And so David makes sure that this time they transport the ark on poles. And they bring back the ark. In fact, in verse 13, as soon as they had only gone six steps, what do they do? They stop and they worship God through a sacrifice. And then you see this tremendous dancing and rejoicing. David, in fact, dancing before the Lord with all his might. And in verse 15, as it's being brought into the city of David, it was shouting with the sound of the horn. David had recognized that God's anger lasted for only a moment. A moment when Uzzah touched the ark. But notice how long God's blessing was lasting on the house of Obed-Edom? More than a moment. It was continuous. David is no longer shocked. He and, now, he and Israel can now rejoice. And so they celebrate like they've never done before. So how does this apply to us? 
Well, this event in the history of Israel is also a shadow of the celebration we will experience when we are face-to-face with God. Because of the gift of salvation God offers us through the life and death of His Son, Jesus Christ, we no longer need to be traumatized by God's holiness. Like David, we can sing and dance and enjoy God's blessing. I love how 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it about this great exchange that God takes our trauma and replaces it with his contentment. 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love how Isaiah chapter 61, verses 10, describes the joy that we can have in what God has done for us. Listen to these wonderful words. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Before I close in prayer, let me challenge you to contemplate about this holy God. He is awesome. He is unlike anything that we can imagine. In fact, I think one of the reasons why we have such joy in heaven is because it will take us eternity to comprehend who God is in all his holiness and all his awesomeness and his majesty. If you this morning are here listening to me and you haven't realized the depths of your sin, how cut off you are from God, I ask that you would do so this morning. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let me challenge you to make sure you're not living like the Philistines. Don't practice the culture around you. Keep your nose in God's word. Obey God and obey him. Will you allow God to heal you of your trauma? to restore you to a right relationship with him through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ? Or will you continue to be traumatized by God's holiness because you do not accept Christ's death on the cross for you? If you do that, you will be struck down dead like Uzzah when you meet God. Father, we just thank you for this passage, this event recorded for us in 2 Samuel 6 that reminds us, Lord, of how holy, how awesome how dreadful you are in comparison to us and our sin. And yet, Lord, this passage also reminds us of your incredible love for us. Lord, that you would make a way for us to be not just with you, but that you would satisfy your anger against our sin, that you would make an atonement for us. And Lord, as David did, we can dance and rejoice and praise and worship you knowing that you are with us. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for living that perfect life, for dying that horrible death on the cross so that we could be with our God, our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.